Acts 22, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read to verse 22. Acts chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness, bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground. I heard the voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus. There you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, he came to me, standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. You will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by approving and watching over his garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. This passage, we've been building in the book of Acts, have we not? We have been walking through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 21 today, 21 and 22. We'll get in a little bit into chapter 23, but we've been building in the book of Acts. And up to this point, you know, the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts are in many ways about about the Apostle Peter and the earliest followers of Jesus, those who followed Jesus during his life, and they were preaching the gospel. They were testifying, you will be my witnesses, you will be my testifiers. And the book of Acts is about people testifying to the greatness of Jesus. 
You get the first 12 chapters, and that's really about Peter and the 12. And then you get into chapters 13 and beyond here, and you're talking much more about the Apostle Paul and his journeys. And with the Apostle Paul, we've been making note that there are various seasons in the life of the Apostle Paul. And he is completing a season right now as we read this passage where the season where he had been set apart for ministry, set apart Barnabas and Saul for me for the ministry that I've called them to, and it's this ministry of traveling freely, free travel, and planting churches in various cities throughout the the Jewish diaspora world, particularly in in Cyprus and Turkey and Greece, modern day those areas, okay? This point in our narrative marks a shift where Paul is no longer freely going to be able to travel. This is going to mark the beginning of Paul's imprisonment. And what we find out is that there are letters that Paul writes where he's free, like 1st and 2nd Corinthians and the book of Romans, but there's also books that Paul writes when he is in prison, what we call the prison epistles, things like Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Um, and Ephesians. These are all what we would call prison epistles. And so this time we have these two seasons, the free Paul and we have the bound Paul, and we're about to enter into the bound Paul. And what we get in this time is Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem. And as he's been traveling freely, we've noted that Paul has been saying, look, what I have to do is I have to go back to Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple of things that Paul wants to do when he goes back to Jerusalem, and scholars are a little bit, um, there's a little bit of a debate there. One of the things that we know from his letters, not so much from the book of Acts, is that while Paul is out in Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, okay, Turkey, Greece, Cyprus, and he plants these churches, he takes a collection, money, he collects money, but not for himself, right? Paul works with his hands to support himself. He takes a collection, though, because his intent is to take that collection back to Jerusalem. Now, there there are different ideas about why that might be. Some people say the Jerusalem church was very poor and they needed a collection. Um, One of my um, mentors, Se-Young Kim at Fuller Seminary, who was one of my teachers, one of my professors um, in my PhD program, what he thought was the case was that Paul saw the preaching of the gospel as an opportunity to fulfill the messianic promises. And if you think back in the Old Testament, one of the messianic promises was that Um, the nation of Israel, when the Messiah came, that Gentiles would pay tribute to the nation of Israel. And that this was one of the things that maybe Paul was doing as he was making this collection and, and gathering Gentile converts and bringing them all back to Jerusalem. That might have been one thing that he was doing. And we see the, the various ripples of that in the book of Acts, and he's coming back to Jerusalem. But if you've been paying attention, you've been keeping score at home, you realize that Paul's coming back to Jerusalem is also this bit of a foreboding tone. Like if you are, if this is a movie, like the dialogue gets softer and it gets darker and the music starts to get a little bit more, you know, a little bit darker. And he starts talking about, look, every town that I go to, The Holy Spirit is telling me that mistreatment and imprisonment awaits me. But Paul's ready. He's ready to go. And what we see in this passage, in the passage that we're going to look at today, this Jerusalem, the return to Jerusalem with the gift, with Gentile converts, this is going to be a really pivotal, pivotal, it's a pivotal time, 
pivot. All right. It's an important time, okay, for the Apostle Paul. So what I want to do um, this morning is I just want to look at this idea that Paul has preached these things like Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the King, and that is going to get him in some trouble. But also not just that Jesus is the King, but that those who are not Jewish are able to be part of his kingdom. And that, just those two things, those two things are going to get him in trouble because what's going to happen is that as Paul is out and he's preaching Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is King, that there are, Jew, there are people who are Jewish who are responding. There are also people who are not Jewish that are responding, Gentiles. And Paul has to make this decision, well, do I make someone who comes to faith in Jesus? I mean, Jesus is Jewish. He's the Jewish Messiah. Jews are, are under the Torah. Do I make them obey all the laws and regulations that I obey as a Pharisee? And Paul says, that's not necessary. That the, that the Torah, the law, Jewish identity markers are not mandatory. So Jesus is the king. Gentiles are invited into that kingdom but they do not have to behave and act and obey all the identity markers that Jews obey. That is going to make this trip to Jerusalem dangerous. It's going to make, it's going to make it controversial. It's going to make it that he has made lots of enemies by preaching those three things. Jesus is the Messiah, the King, Gentiles can be part of that kingdom, and they do not have to behave like Jews in order to do so. Those three things are going to make this trip very interesting. Now, there's, there's a number of things about this, this trip, and what we're going to do is we're basically going today look at his, this trip into Jerusalem, and we're going to see that Paul's going to get into trouble, and every time he gets into trouble, he's going to have to play a card. He's going to play a card. Anybody out here play like hearts? Or Rook, you guys are good Christians, so you don't play cards, right? I'm just kidding. Yeah. But you've got, you know that there, there are certain cards that are, that are significant, right? You play hearts, and uh, what is it? It's the, 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 the queen of spades, right? You either want that or you don't want that. You want to play that or you don't want to get stuck with it. But there's a card to be played, and it's a significant card. It's an important card. And Paul's going to have four cards that he plays, to get himself out of trouble, and what we're going to see is that it moves him into the next season of his ministry. So I want to just walk through this, make some comments about these things, and then I want to, then I want to ask a question about what is it essentially that is separating the Apostle Paul from these people that are causing him problems, all right? You guys with me? That sounds like a lot, and we might get wrapped around the axle a little this morning, but hang with me, bear with me. Let's look at this. I'm going to walk through some of these passages and make some notes. If you have your Bible, we're going to be flipping some pages. If, you have, if you're taking notes, it might go a little fast, but, but hang with me on this. All right, so let's, let's look at this lively visit, and I want to look at these four things that he does. All right, starting in verse 21. I'm sorry, chapter 21 and verse 17. So before the passage that we read, I, what I read this morning is essentially Paul's defense of himself as he gets into some serious hot water, okay? But before that, we're going to back it up. We're going to rewind and we're going to look at this. Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. It says, when we come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So the people who believe in Jesus, they received him gladly. And verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, 
and all the elders who were present. This James is likely not James the apostle like James and John, but James the brother of Jesus, the guy who wrote the book of James in your Bible in your New Testament. And James was really was the person who rose up as the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so maybe one of the most powerful people among the believers in the city of Jerusalem, and Paul goes to visit him. And he goes there in verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. They heard it, they glorified God, they said to him, and then this is, this is what James says to Paul. He says, hey, look, there are thousands among the Jews here in Jerusalem who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah. But here's the deal, Paul. They are all zealous to obey Torah. James is saying, hey, look, Paul, you've been out in the Gentile world, and you've been preaching the gospel, and that's awesome. I'm on board with that. I love that. But out there, there's not the sort of pressure to be Torah observant, to eat kosher, to circumcise your children, uh, to obey Sabbath regulations. But here in Jerusalem, we've got the believers here are very zealous for the law. They're very zealous for Torah. They love Jesus, but they're also zealous for the law. Now, I don't know if you've really thought about this, but that is a, that's a category in the earliest among the earliest followers of Jesus, there are people who are Jewish, who are Torah observant, who love the law. And even this, 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 uh, the, uh, the controversy that we see like in the book of Galatians about people who are preaching Jesus and the law and what that means. And Paul is, not, Paul is like, no, it's just Jesus, not Jesus plus anything. But that is a controversy that he walks right into as he comes back home. And so there are Jewish believers who are zealous. And when we say zealous, zealous means that they are, they get worked up about it. Here's the best analogy that I would give to you. All right. What's something that is not in the Bible that I would say that we all here love? And I would say this. I was thinking about this. I would say I love the idea of a constitutional republic. I love the Constitution. I love the division of powers. I love the idea that you have local representation. I like the idea of a federal government. I like the idea of a smaller federal government, but that's neither here nor there right now. Okay, here we go. So, but if I, if I were to come up and to say, hey, look, you can love Jesus in any country of any government, and that, that government does not need to be a constitutional republic. It doesn't even need to be a democracy and you could love Jesus. And you'd be like, hey, blasphemer, you probably are thinking that right now. How dare you even imply that there's another form of government that is better than our government here in the United States of America? Like, is your blood boiling a little bit? If it is, you know exactly how these people are feeling. But I'm here to say that has nothing to do with your Christianity. Like, you could go to England, and they're a constitutional monarchy. They're not a constitutional re republic. You could love Jesus there. You could, go, you could go to China, and it is an oppressive communist country, and you could still love Jesus. And God could still work through that, right? So, all this to say, again, I don't, but the point being, 
the point being is what I want to do is kind of touch on something that you would be like, hey, Mr. Craig up there, don't you dare say anything bad against our form of government. It's the best in the world. I would say, I, would, I agree, I agree, but it's not necessary. Does that make sense? And if you're angry, then you get the point, okay? And we can talk afterwards, and this will be good. Send me emails. I like getting emails. It's good. All right, so do you guys get my point, though? So Paul is saying it's not mandatory to obey Torah. Paul does. We're going to see that he does. It's not mandatory, but, I, but you can do it. All right. All right. They love their heritage, and they hear that, Paul, you're saying we should toss it out the window. All right. So Paul then plays his first card. You guys ready? I don't know what card this would be. If it's hearts, maybe we've, we've broken spades, and now we're coming out with like the jack, the jack of spades, right? And we're going to control this game, and I'm going to control it. So I'm playing the card, and that's, this is the card. Look at 20, verse 23, 21, 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. This is James speaking. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. What James says is something actually that Paul did back in chapter 18 when he was in Corinth is at the end of his time in Corinth, he shaved his head because he was under what they call a Nazarite vow. Have you guys ever heard of a Nazarite vow? If you're doing a Bible reading plan, you're in the chronological Bible, you probably just read a passage about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And it was basically this idea that if you were at a season of your life and you wanted to consecrate yourself to the Lord, what you would do is you would go to the temple, you would shave your head, you would shave all of your hair off, you would burn it in front of the temple, and you would say, here I am, Lord, I am set apart for your purposes. And James says, we got four guys who are doing this today. By the way, I'm happy that when you called me as a pastor, you did not impose the Nazarite vow. I think everybody's happy about that, okay? But the idea is that this is what, we got four guys who are doing this. Paul, why don't you do that with them? You pay their way, and it'll show, it'll demonstrate that you still love, that, that these are false reports. And Paul says, okay. And this is, for Paul, I think the idea is Paul says that he is a, he's a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles, and that he will become all things to all men in order that he might win some. And the idea is that when Paul is in Jerusalem, when I'm in, when I'm in a Jew, uh, Jewish lands, I will live and, and act like a Jew. But when I'm in Gentile lands, I will live and act like a Gentile. I will be a, a Hebrew to the Hebrews. I will be a Gentile to the Gentiles so that I might win some. First card played. I am, I am Jewish. That's one of the things that sometimes when um, people talk about the New Testament and they say, you know, the New Testament is anti-Semitic. You know, because we're going to see that there, there's plenty in here about like the temple, the temple's not the way to go, that even the, the circumcision is not necessary or Sabbath regulations are not necessary. But here's the thing. Uh, Jesus was Jewish, and he had critique of the Jewish nation. Paul is Jewish, and he has critique. So it's not anti-Semitic, right? 
but it is this idea that there are hard things that are said about some of the traditions in, uh, that, that had rose up during this time. So, Paul is Jewish and can still observe Torah. That's the first card. And he does that, and it kind of, it, 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 it seems as though what it does is it placates all, the Jew, all those who are Jewish who love Jesus, but are still zealous for the law, for the instruction, for the Torah. And Paul doing this seems to say, hey, look, we're all in this together. And I think that's a great, that's a great moment because it doesn't seem like that had, with, with Galatians, which was written earlier, that, that that was still an issue. And so he comes and he does that. But now you have to imagine, Paul's got a shaved head. He's walking around with these four other dudes that have shaved heads. Like, have you ever seen people, and you got four guys, five guys walking around with shaved heads? It's a little hard to recognize them, and we're going to see that that happens here as we get into the next part. Look at chapter 21, verse 27. So they have these seven days, and a Nazarite vow, you do it on the first day, on the seventh day, you complete it. In verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, here, here's the deal. So Paul, he just finished a three-year run in the city of Ephesus, right? That's, that's Asia. And he had made some friends in Asia, in Ephesus, and he had made some enemies in Ephesus. And now it was the Feast of Pentecost, and everybody, all Jews throughout all the, the Roman world had all come back to Jerusalem. Have you ever been at like a national conference, and you see a local competitor at the national conference like, I went to, not like a competitor, but a colleague or something like that. Um, I remember going to Atlanta for a conference, and you're like, and I'm walking around, I'm like, hey, I, I know who you are, but I'm not supposed to see you here. Like, I, I usually see you at home. And that's what happens. You have all these people, enemies of Paul, that come to Jerusalem, and they, not, they see Paul, but they also see this Gentile, Tromphemus, which it says in verse in verse 29, they had previously seen Tromphemus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they had supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Go back up to verse 28. They say, men of Israel, help. This man is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. He even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So, so here we got, I mean, you get this idea. Paul comes into town. And you got all these guys now with shaved heads. Paul has a shaved head. Maybe they thought that Tromphemus had a shaved head too, even though he was a Gentile and that Paul was bringing him into the temple. So if you're a good observant Jew, you're like, that's going to defile the temple. As a matter of fact, one of the inscriptions that was found, first century inscription that was discovered around the temple, chiseled into stone, says this, no one of another nation may enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught shall have himself to blame that his death ensues. Those are inscri- that's an inscription that has been found. First century is probably hanging up at the various entrances of the temple court. And so here they think Paul has brought in this man, Tromphemus, shaved head. It's this mistaken identity, this whole thing. And it says in verse 30, the whole city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. We're going to come back to that phrase, at once the gates were shut. But 
you can see that we have this, we, Paul, Paul has dodged the first bullet, right? All the believing Jews who think that he doesn't like the Torah, he's like, I'm going to do the Nazarite vow, that's going to take care of that. Well, now he's walking around in the temple, and now unbelieving Jews that were from Asia have now spotted him, and they cause a riot. So now, what's the second card that he's going to play? All right, look at uh, 21 verse 31. So the Romans are going to respond, 31, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So here's the scene. They grab Paul. There's a riot in the court, in the temple court. They're beating Paul. Now the Romans had built this huge uh, fortress on the northern side of the temple court, these four tall towers, and they had these people that all they did was look down into the temple court all day long because any unrest in the nation of Israel started in the temple. That was the place where every, every bad thing against Rome started right there. So they, what they had was they had a cohort. They had a thousand soldiers in this fortress that overlooked the temple court. And so they, they start this riot, they start beating up Paul, so there's these, this big staircase that runs down, that run, and it's gone now, but there was the, the, what we have from Josephus, he, he recalls this, this big staircase that runs down from these big towers. It's, like, it's probably like 40 or 50 feet high, the walls, and down to the courtyard, and so this, this huge staircase goes down, and so you have all these soldiers rushing down, and it's funny because when they're beating up Paul and they're like, they're, they see the Romans coming, they're like... I don't know. I don't know. So, of course, what happens? The Romans arrest who? The guy who's getting beat up. They're like, they guess he must have done something wrong. All right? I, justice is, is, Roman justice is an interesting thing. So, they come, they arrest Paul, and they bind him with two chains, and they ask the crowd, okay, what's going on? Now, this is where we start to see that there's a little bit of a linguistic divide between the Romans and the Jews who are rioting. So they're rioting probably in Aramaic. I don't know what the soldier's saying, whether he's speaking Latin or what, but they realize that they're not getting anywhere. Verse 37, Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, and he's getting dragged by the Roman soldiers up the stairs. Now, Paul, this is, this is so awesome, because if I, was being caught, if I was being arrested and in a riot, like I would be like, just get me out of here, okay? I've taken my licks, I'm out of here. But Paul looks at this staircase this 40, 50-foot staircase, he's all, you know what this looks good for? This looks like a great place to make a speech from. <laughs> and so he says, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. He says, Paul was about to be brought in the barracks, and he said, hey, can I say something to you? Now, he says that in Greek, and the Roman soldier is like, I didn't know you spoke Greek. Do you speak Greek? And he says, well, yeah, I did. He goes, and he's all, I thought you were an Egyptian. I thought you were this guy who was like, out to kill Romans. He's, but, but Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. Permit me to speak to the people because this is a pretty nice platform we got going on here at this big staircase. And I could see everybody. And so when he had given permission, Paul, so this, there's a riot. Now there's a sea of people below. The Romans have brought him out, arrested him, put chains on him. And Paul's like, hey, can I address the crowd? <laughs> I love it. Never let an opportunity go to waste. I guess he's like, look, if I'm going down, I'm going down preaching. Okay? So, he says in verse 23, and this is where Paul plays 
his third card, or his second card, I should say. Um, he says, uh, sorry, that, uh, where are we at? All right, I lost my thing. Uh, thank you. When he had given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. All right. Paul's second card that he plays is that Paul is multilingual. Not just bilingual, multilingual. Okay? What do you call someone who knows three languages? Trilingual. Someone who knows two languages? Bilingual. Someone who knows one language? An American. Okay? All right. So, I'm like, I'm totally bagging on our country today. What am I doing? All right, stop. Okay, so the idea is that the riot is going on. The riot is going on in Aramaic. They are rioting in Aramaic because Aramaic was the common language in Jerusalem of the day. Paul turns to the Roman soldier and starts talking to him in in Greek. And that stops the Roman soldier in his track. He's like, hey, you know Greek. Well, let's talk what's going on. He's like, yeah, can I talk to these people? So then he stands up on these steps and either he addresses them in Aramaic, which because the crowd is like, this guy is anti-law, he's anti, like if he's, if, if Paul were to address the crowd in Greek, they would have just finished him off with stones or something, because their whole thing was, we don't want Greeks in the temple. So what does Paul do? I'm fluent in Aramaic, either that or Hebrew. Like if he goes in Hebrew, the language of the scriptures, or Aramaic, the whole crowd hushes. They're like, we thought this guy was a dirty Greek. And now, so he's gotten the attention of the guards, and now he gets the attention of the, of the crowd. Paul plays his second card. He knows languages, and it gives him this in. I don't want to fly over these verses. I know that sometimes, like, this whole passage can be a little bit of a flyover, but there's a lot that's going on here that we understand about Paul. And as he tells a story in the passage that we had read this morning, he tells a story. He uses the occasion of his being beaten in a riot and his arrest to give his testimony. <laughs> that is awesome. He had, and he had prepared himself. He knew what he would say. He, he basically gives us Acts chapter 9 again. It's awesome. Right up until one point. And the testimony, you would imagine this testimony has people on the edge of their seat until he says one thing. And that is this in verse 21. After he had been confronted by the risen Jesus and brought to Jerusalem, and he's in this trance in the temple, and at this point they're like, yeah, God's going to speak to him. God's going to speak to him. And Paul's like, yeah, God spoke to me, and this is what he told me. Go to the Gentiles. At that point, the crowd is like, bah, like this is over. He has them in his hand until he says, God told me to take your inheritance to the Gentiles. And then everybody erupts, like it's over, like you, you had your time, Paul. That No, that's, that's the end, and it says that it, everyone erupts, And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, throwing dust into the air, and the tribune orders to take him into the barracks. This is when Paul brings his third card. So we find that he is is Jewish, and it quells 
the issues that he has with the Jewish believers, and that he's multilingual, and it gives him opportunity to share his testimony to this throng of people in the temple. But Paul is not out of trouble. In verse 24, the tribune ordered to have him brought into the barracks, saying he should be examined by flogging. So they're like, well, let's whip this dude to interrogate him. Let's flog him, and then we'll figure out what's wrong. It's like, well, you could just ask, but they were like, no, it's better if we flog you, okay? They were Romans, you know? So when, they, when he was being stretched, this is the greatest line, while he's being stretched out for the whips, like he's being, he's being bound and he's being stretched out so they can get a good whip on him, Paul says to the centurion, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? I love, this is like a great, like as he's being stretched out on thing, he's, Paul's like, hey, uh, is it okay for you guys to just do this to Roman citizens without a trial? Third card, boom. Paul's a Roman citizen. And Again, here's, let me say one thing about the United States of America that I appreciate, and that is whether you are a citizen or not in this country, you are allowed due process. That's the point. The point, the point of, of a just society is that any person who's accused of any crime is allowed due process. That was not the case in Rome. If you were a foreigner, you would get beaten and punished and then ask questions later. But only Roman citizens were allowed due process. And so Paul says, question time, as you're stretching me out to whip me and beat me, and he might have learned this, he might have learned this lesson in Philippi. Because in Philippi, he was beaten with rods, and the next morning he's like, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, by the way. And so he he endures the beating up to that point, but on this occasion, he's like, hey, I'm not up for a beating today. I'm going Roman, I'm playing my third card today. And that is, I'm a Roman citizen. And what that does what that does is it changes the entire direction of the book of Acts. Paul is free up to this point to travel and to do his ministry, but at this point, Paul invokes his Roman citizenship, and what that means is now Paul is going to be on a path to Rome in chains, but on the dime of the Roman government. And we're going to see that Paul is in chains And while he's in chains, he's called out to speak to kings and rulers and princes and Roman centurions and Roman tribunes. And he has access now to, as he calls it in the book of Philippians, Caesar's household. Where he would never have had access to that had he not been in chains. And Paul, or that, that, that Luke now, as he, tells, as he ta- tells the story of the gospel, that Paul is now going to enter into a very fruitful time of ministry, but it is a, a time of ministry of imprisonment for him. It will be a much more challenging time, a much more, demand much more patience on the part of the Apostle Paul, but that God will use that very fruitfully. So his first, his first card, I'm Jewish, second card, I know lots of languages, and that gets him, look, that will get you a lot, that'll get you some attention. And then his third card, I am a Roman citizen. All right, his fourth card is this. In verse 23, um, so Paul gets, I'm just going to 
let me paraphrase, um, that Paul gets called before uh, the Jewish government. So the Romans say, okay, we're going to have a trial. We're going to bring the, the, the high priest out and all this. And, and so they bring the Sanhedrin out. The Sanhedrin is composed of Pharisees and Sadducees, which are different. Pharisees, the Sadducees are, are tied to the temple. They're the more wealthy. They're the more uh, theologically liberal. The Pharisees are the more conservative. They're more tied to the synagogue. They're more rural. But they're all on this council together. And when Paul comes to them, Paul, it says in verse 6, 23, 6, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other's Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It's respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees did not. It would, it would have been like, I don't know how many of you guys are, are theologically savvy. I would imagine some of you guys are because you've been around the block. But if you were to walk into a big church gathering where you've got Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and, and, you, and, and you, you said, you know, and you got in trouble you, and you, you wanted to change the subject, you say, well, look, I'm a Calvinist and I'm here on trial because of the sovereignty of God, right? And all the Calvinists are like, yeah, the sovereignty of God. And then, or if you were like, uh, you're like, hey, look, I'm on trial here because I believe in the free will of humanity. And they're like, what? You know, how do you, how dare you? Like, that's what he did. He basically just took, here's his fourth card that he plays. Paul knows the partisan theological politics of his day. And he knew how to exploit them in order to get out of trouble or to get a, a, a foot in a door. What I love about this passage is that Paul is like, look, I got, I got cards to play. I'm in the game. And the Lord has me here. And yet the Lord can save me, but the Lord can also, the Lord has given me some abilities at this time. And I'm going to play these cards so that I have an opportunity to take the gospel where it has never gone before. All right. Thank you for going, getting wrapped around the axle on that story with me because I, I, I want us to understand the Apostle Paul and we are moving into this, this last portion of the book of Acts as Luke is going to be, start to land this plane, but he's going to do it in chains, okay? But what is the primary thing that sets apart the Apostle Paul from his detractors? What is the primary thing that sets the Apostle Paul apart from his detractors? I want you to look back in, verse, in chapter 22. I'm sorry, chapter 21. In chapter 21, in verse 30, at the very beginning of this, this story, all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And at once, the gates were shut. The gates of the temple. There's this big uproar. Paul is defiling the temple. They drag Paul out and they shut the gates of the temple. Now, one of the things about the temple, and what I want you guys to understand is this. If you were Jewish in that day, you believed that God lived in that temple. And the only way to have access to God, the only way to have access to God was to go through that temple, to go through those doors. One of the things that the book of Acts has taught us already, it taught us with the Ethiopian eunuch who was not able to go through those doors. But God sent Philip, this sweaty Jewish guy running alongside a chariot, to interpret the, the book of Isaiah to an Ethiopian eunuch who had no opportunity to go into the temple. We saw it with the speech of Stephen, 
that Stephen says, while, while they have stones in their hands and they're ready to kill him, he says, God does not live in houses built by human hands. And they pick up stones and they kill him because of the temple. Because God lives in the temple and we have to keep that, we have to keep that pure. One of the things that Luke wants us to understand is that God, Luke wants us to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple that separated the outer court from the Holy of Holies, it was torn in two, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, that God was saying, no, I don't want any barrier between me and my people. I don't want any barrier. And it's not so much that God is letting people into the temple, it's that God gets loose. God escapes. It's not like he ever was ever really uh, there, like he was confined there, but he escapes. And the book of Acts is not, you come to Jerusalem and hear the gospel. It's God is going to send his people out to testify because God is not bound. I think it's one of the saddest verses. It's, it's actually the last time in your New Testament that the temple will be mentioned. Because the doors of the temple were shut. Later on, probably not long after the book of Acts is written, the temple was actually destroyed by the Romans. But the idea is, the earliest followers of Jesus knew, you do not encounter God in a temple built by human hands. You encounter God in a person. You encounter God in the person of Jesus. You don't walk through the doors of the temple to get to God. You go through the person of Jesus to get to God. And the one thing that separated Paul from his detractors was this. Paul believed every person, every man, every woman, every child, no one was disqualified from hearing about the glorious riches of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. No door would ever be shut. Paul knew every door needed to be opened because God wanted every person to hear about the life-saving and the life-changing power of salvation that is available in the person of Jesus Christ and the offer of the Holy Spirit. When the offer of forgiveness, the offer of the Holy Spirit is an invitation to everyone that no door should ever be shut on any living person. And I think for us today, as, we, as I kind of land this plane this morning, is just a little reflection, especially as we come up on Easter and, and the ch- our challenge is, look, invite people. Invite people to participate in our Easter service. Invite people to worship the Lord. Invite people to hear the gospel. Look, I will stand here on Easter morning and I will talk about the beauty of the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ and make it very clear how someone can, bring, can ask Jesus to be part of their life, to receive the Holy Spirit, to have life-changing, tra- life-transforming power available to them. If you invite your friend, they will hear the gospel. They will hear the good news, because every door should be open. And I just, I have to do this every once in a while, is just ask the question, have I closed the door in my mind to any person? Is there any person any group of people that right now I would have a hard time giving the riches of salvation to. Like if I, 
Has my heart been hardened to any group? Would I be upset if a type of person walked through those doors on a Sunday morning? And again, it's, 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 it's a diagnostic. It's a diagnostic for me. And I've got to be like, look, God, grow my heart. Grow the grace. Help me to understand what your heart is for this world. And so as, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Just as we, as we kind of, um, as we take some moments now, just to do a little bit of reflection like, have I shut the doors of the temple to anyone? It's sad because there is no temple left. The only temple is Jesus. The place where heaven and earth meet is Jesus. The doorway to the Father is through Jesus, and He will not be destroyed. He's proven that. He is resilient. He is risen. And we're going to celebrate that in a few weeks, but as we prepare, as we prepare to just ask, is there someone that I've closed the door to? And if something comes up, just confess it to the Lord. He loves you. He loves you. His, his, his mercy, his, his compassion is overwhelming, is unbounding. 